Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Russell, a man barely alive. Yes, I'm old enough to have watched The Six Million Dollar Man when it premiered in 1977. That's pretty old. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to episode 4-312 of the Run Run Live podcast. This is Chris, your host, and I'm glad to see you. Won't you come in, grab a towel, and sit down with me for a wee bit while you cool down from your exertions? of the week. It's been a busy spring for me. At the end of April, I capped a worthy training cycle by running my 17th Boston Marathon. Six days later, I fulfilled my role as titular figurehead, i.e. race director, at the 24th annual Groton Road Race. And last week, I spent a couple days in the hospital to have a special bionic power set installed. Not really. I preferred to think of it as an upgrade rather than a patch. They didn't fix a bug in my heart. They upgraded me to Chris 3.0. And now I've got superpowers like Peter Parker or Steve Austin. 
So this week, I rolled out to Phoenix at the crack of dawn Monday morning for a conference, then bopped over to Denver to meet a guy for dinner last night and grabbed the red eye back to Boston. It was on the way. And as I write this, I realize how ridiculously busy that sounds, and just ridiculous in, in general, and I was and am a bit tired now, but it's not unusual for me, as you know, by now. I run pretty fast in my life, so to speak, pun intended, and there's nothing here that coffee, running, meditation, and denial can't fix, frankly. So I don't want to make this about me, but I guess some of you might be interested in the exercise-induced AFib that I have had and the procedure to have it fixed. From what I've learned, this condition or this related family of conditions where where athletes develop anomalies in their heartbeats is uh, is actually very common. And typically they treat it with drugs and tell you to stop being such a type A butthead. But there's a whole range of pharmacological and surgical solutions that can be applied to this. In my particular case, the AFib manifested when I went long or hard, basically any time I loaded my heart. And it developed over the course of two or three years and got worse enough for me to figure out something was up. And I got a real diagnosis at the end of the year, this year. It manifests as an irregular heartbeat, in my case. And in exercise, this means that you lose efficiency and power. And the worst case scenario is that your blood pools in your heart chamber and it causes clots and stroke. It's caused by anomalous electrical signals that originate in the sheathing of the the pipes of the upper right chamber of the heart, in my case. And the procedure I had is known as cryoablation. They snake a catheter up through the big arteries in your groin into that chamber of your heart. And I suppose it's a bit invasive, but they don't crack your chest open, which is a, a plus. And when they get the catheter in there, their catheter is actually multiple multiple things going on. They snake another one down your windpipe, too, to look at it from the back because your heart actually uh, backs right up against your windpipe, as it turns out. It sort of sits sideways in your chest that way. And they uh, use a balloon with liquid nitrogen in it, 474 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, to ablate, which in this case means freezing the tissue where those pipes come into the heart. And in this way, they create a dam of scar tissue that blocks the signals from getting into the heart muscles and, best case scenario, cures the AFib. So, yeah, that's what I did last week. They did all the blood tests, EKG, CAT scan on Monday, and then I went in Thursday morning for the procedure. Uh, I was a bit of an anomaly myself in the hospital. Those hospitals, as it turns out, are just chock full of sick people. The nice nurses got me naked and shaved up. My wife finally got to have my back hair shaved like she's been trying to get me to do for years. But I don't remember it, most of it. When I woke up, they'd given me the uh, personal manscape as well. And I know in the men's magazines, this is sexy. But on me, it's it's like Golem on a bad hair day. The <laughs> the entire area where they went into the groin artery was uh, shaved up, leaving Mr. Happy with a cute little Fuhrer mustache. And I was under for the procedure. I was out like a light. And I woke up in the afternoon a bit groggy, but apparently successfully upgraded. 
and they said everything went well except that I was a bit fibrous in the core region there in the abdomen, and they had a little trouble feeding the catheter up. And my abdomen is still sore, and it's been a week. I had to spend the night in the hospital, and I had my wits about me and was up and about early Thursday afternoon, so I was sort of left trapped in a room in a hospital full of sick people with really bad food options and a lot of free time on my hands. So I cleared all my email and got caught up on work stuff and watch Netflix. I can put up with anything, as long as there's good Wi-Fi, right? Know what I mean? And meanwhile, <laughs> and meanwhile, a parade of smiling nurses came into my room and asked, Do you mind if I look at your groin? <laughs> to which I'd reply, Knock yourself out. So it's the most attention my groin has gotten in decades. Friday morning, they processed me out. They told me not to run for a week or lift anything heavy. Uh, they're concerned not for the heart, but for the insertion site. They don't want you to rupture that groin artery because it will, it will bleed a lot. And they also put me on blood thinners. So the good news is I won't get a clot, but I could very well expire in a messy shaving accident. The punchline, well, I held off running until Thursday morning because my abdomen was still quite sore and I didn't want to push it. And I walked a bunch during the week. Thursday morning, I was out in Phoenix, I put my heart rate strap on and set out with not a small amount of trepidation. And that's a big word for fear. Yeah, I was, as much as I ever am, afraid of what might happen. You know, would my heart race? Would I pop my groin and bleed out there in the gutter? And I know it's silly, but you have these crazy thoughts, right? Fear isn't, isn't rational. I walked for five minutes, warmed up. And then I slowly started running and brought my heart rate up into zone two for 15 minutes. And it was quite comfortable. And after 20 minutes, I threw in a little zone three, zone four surge, and the heart didn't flip. I was able to bring it up and bring it down without anything weird happening. So it's very encouraging data. We won't really know until I go long or do a significant long tempo run or something. But all in good time. To quote the late, great Hunter Thompson, it got pretty weird, but it never got weird enough for me. So we have a great show for you today. I have a chat with Randy, who's a blind runner from my area, who talks about his inspirational summiting of all the peaks above 4,000 feet in the New Hampshire White Mountains with his guide dog, some of it in the wintertime. And he also ran Boston this year, and we have a number of mutual friends in the local running community. It's a great, great chat. I think you'll enjoy it. In section one, I tackle the question, what would I do if I had to create a good runner from scratch? The script that I wrote for this piece is in outline form, and I recorded it in a hotel room in Phoenix, so it's a bit more conversational than my usual prose. You'll have to work around that. The second section is a rant about why I can't get a decent salad anywhere conveniently in my world. But of course, I've got my vegetable garden, speaking of salads, and I've, I've been working on it. It's springtime in New England. I built a new raised bed and used up my compost in it. The soil is a bit young, but I'm going to try growing beans in it because beans will grow in anything. And I also built a potato box, which should prove an interesting experiment. And I've moved some of my raspberries around and should get a bumper berry crop. I managed to prune my fruit trees, so we'll see if I can even get some fruit this year. The hops are up and going crazy already. I've got some lettuce and some cabbagey things in and some herbs in there. 
and I've got my chipmunk trap set up, and with any luck, I'll be having fruit and veg from my own garden in a month or so from now. So on with the show. I am not afraid of failing. I take leaps of faith on those things that are important and make sense to me. So I was thinking about running and how I've been running for many years now. And I have a different different viewpoint of that because of it. And I really wanted to get back to basics. And I wanted to answer the question, how... If if you had somebody who wanted to start running from scratch, what would you tell them? So here's a post that's called Back to Basics, How to Become a Runner from Scratch, or a better runner, as the case may be, depending on where you are. There's an assumption that running is easy, that it involves no specific skills or body of knowledge. The zeitgeist of our sport is that all you have to do is show up, do the work, and keep at it. That's all you have to do to be successful. And while running is indeed a simple sport with few rules and requirements, there is a body of knowledge. And I'm going to start a project now to create a good and competent runner from scratch. I'm going to rigorously answer these questions, what if I was starting from scratch? What if I was new to the sport and new to the concept and new to the practice? What would be the sequence of skills that I would need to acquire and master? So most of us, including myself, got into the sport, just started running and just figured it out as we went along. This is an acceptable approach to a simple sport, but what if we knew what we know today? How would we do it differently? What if we wanted to be runners as a lifestyle choice over the long term? How would we approach that acquisition and practice of that body of knowledge? So if we approached it with fresh eyes, could we make progress faster? Could we scale the miles and the speed if we wanted to? Could we stay healthier? I thought about this, and the first thing that I think you should do if you're a new runner, you're about to enter the sport, is to understand your why, or as Stephen Covey would say, start with the end in mind. Why do you want to start running? Why are you doing this? Is it weight loss? Is it fitness? Is it a higher quality of life? Is it for adventure? Is it for community? Are you trying to prove something? Figure out what that is and write it down because you'll be, you'll, you'll need to return to that often. That's your purpose. And without a purpose, you're not going to be able to sustain it. And the second thing before I got started that I would think about is how are you going to create that space in your life for running? You're taking on something new. How are you going to engineer your life so that it fits? And that's going to take some prioritization. What's more important than your running? And what is your running more important than? How are you going to find that time? Create an agreement with your family and your friends. And figure out the power of establishing routines and habits and the power of neuroplasticity, right? So when you stick with something for a for a couple of weeks, it starts to change your your brain. It starts to rewire your brain. That's the second thing I would do is find a way and think about creating space in my life. And the third thing I'd do is I would start building up early my support system. 
And what, what does that mean? It means you're going to look for mentors in the sport, coaches. You're going to find a massage therapist, uh, maybe a nutrition coach, a sports medicine doctor, a physical therapist, and get these folks in the queue because you're going to need them. The next thing I would do is I would think about a set of goals because running is a very quantitative sport, and it helps some people to have good quantifiable goals. So where are you going? What are the milestones? Do you want to be able to run a mile without stopping? Do you want to be able to run a 5K? You know, what's reasonable? And you can figure out what's reason what are reasonable goals because they will align with your purpose. Are you interested in racing and going long in a running streak, in a fitness lifestyle? It'll align with your purpose, and that'll give you a set of goals. And the next thing I would do is I would call this acquiring an army of like-minded fools. And we can see this in our community, which is just means finding that running community and finding those running partners and those running clubs and the online support groups and the local races, getting into that community, because that's one of the wonderful things. And this would be right out of the gate, right? And then if I had to do it over again, the next thing I'd do, or another thing that I would think about early on, would be setting a lifetime line. You're not going to be able to get faster or go longer forever. So what's your end game? Do you want to be racing? Do you want to be running? Do you want to be healthy when you're 50, when you're 60, when you're 70, when you're 80? So if you look over your lifetime, what's your plan? And that should align with your purpose, and you should be able to slot your goals in there. Now, as to the running itself, the physical act of running, the first thing I would do before I even started running is I would focus on strengthening the body. Get a coach, strengthen the body. Start early on building out that sympathetic running strength. Start early on building out your core. Work your core into your initial running program before you need it. And work on your leg strength as well. And with that, I would also look at your flexibility. Even before you get into the running, look at your flexibility. Stretching and range of motion. Why is that important? Right? Because that's going to help you in your running act. Maybe you, you take on some yoga or some balance routines and you learn how to stretch and you learn that technique so you're doing it right without hurting yourself. And that would be great if you had that when you started the physical act of running. And you know what? The other thing that I have developed over time, which has been incredibly useful to me, is nurturing the mind-body connection listening, truly listening to your body and what that means, understanding the physical and the mental signals that you get from running, and using your mind to enhance your body with visualization and meditation techniques and that sort of thing. So that would be something else that I'd front load in the in the running acquisition process. I'd also front load some of the nutrition stuff. A lot of times the nutrition stuff is an afterthought, but I'd think about it as fueling for life. What should I eat for running is probably the wrong question. If you're designing a healthy lifestyle that includes running, then a nutrition plan is appropriate as well. You don't have to do it all at once. You don't need drastic diets or any kind of fads. Just find a long-term strategy when you're starting and understand that, and you'll be much more successful. And find that common thread in all those diets that works over time, because it has to be sustainable. 
With that, you're going to want to learn about basic hydration strategies and understand how your body uses fluid and how it processes it, because basically your body is a big bag of water. You're going to want, want to understand the symptoms and how to get in and out of dehydration states. You're going to want to understand hyponatremia, uh, which is too much water, water poisoning, and how to get in and out of that and symptoms of that as well. And then you start thinking about when I'm now I'm starting to run, how do I fuel on the run? What do you really need when you're out on the road? How does that impact your performance? Understand how your body burns sugar, burns fat, uses protein, and, and what that means to your performance. And, you know, some of the fun stuff when you start running is you get to build a new wardrobe, right? What do you really need? You want to be comfortable. You want to have hot and cold weather strategies. You want to have some sun protection, some cold protection. Very important. And then the biggest question that all beginners ask, what are the best shoes for me? Well, I <laughs> I always say that's probably the wrong question to ask. You probably want to start out by learning how your feet work and understanding your feet and fixing your form instead of masking it with some sort of correctional shoes. You want to figure out where to start and how to learn as you go because there's no 100% answer and this will change over time. You know, how many miles are you going to be running? You know, understand barefoot and minimalist and all that stuff. And the types of shoes are all different and they're intended for different things. And you'll have to figure it out. You know, you have hokas like I wear, the maximal shoes. But I think starting that process early and seeing it as a learning process instead of an end result, you'll be a lot more successful in the long term. And don't be dogmatic about it. Same is true for technology. What you need and what you don't need I, you know, it's very important because you really don't need a lot, but some of it's very useful. What, what data do you want to track over time and how is that helpful? You know, your speed, your pace, your distance, your foot speed, your cadence, your heart rate. You can track all these things, but you don't have to because sometimes data becomes a trap. So understanding that strategy. And then, you know, as we start running, I just wish that someone had taught me good form when I started running. First thing out of the back, out of the gate, what is good form? Because that is the single most important thing, and it's the single thing that most new runners get wrong. And it's the most important building block of success. And breaking it down and understanding what good form is is very important. And then practicing that from the beginning and getting someone to review your form. Look at the different form-based running systems like chi running, pose running, barefoot running, and understand why. Do that from the beginning and understand effort-based training or heart rate-based training, right? What is it? What are your heart rate zones? What are your effort zones? And those simple effort-based training runs and finding and practicing what your aerobic thresholds are and your max heart rate are. Very useful tool to diagnose and, and to understand your health. You want to start if you're going to be racing or you want to go long. The, you know, once you get your form locked in, the next thing you do is you build an aerobic base. How to use that form and those zones to build an aerobic base and why that aerobic base is a precursor to your success. Very simple aerobic training plans. And then you get, once you have all that stuff, all that stuff, then, only then, I would start looking at advanced topics like going longer, right? 
I want to understand the wall. I want to go for marathon distance or big weekly mileage and how to do that and stay in injury-free and recover. Or how to get faster. What's speed work, right? What's the track? What are intervals? How to do tempo? You know, why? What's your tempo pace? What's that effort level? What are those popular tempo workouts like yassos and fartleks and step-up runs? And then how to do long runs, because long runs are an art in themselves, right? Why are you doing those, and how long should you go, and what are the tactics? How to do specialty workouts, like hill work, uphill running, and downhill running. What's the form for those? Very different. These are all the advanced things. I wouldn't start with these. And I see beginners, they jump into these things and start sampling them. And if you don't have the block of stuff in the beginning, the understanding of why you're doing it, the good form, the aerobic base, the core strength... This is where you hurt yourself. When you get bored with that, you can go into specialty topics like multi-sport, your biking, your running, how to transition back and forth between those because you can leverage your aerobic base. And you can, you can go into trail running and mountain running and ultra running and running with your dog and all these great things. And that, my friends, is how I would approach learning how to run from scratch if I had to start into it again. And I'll see if, you know, I'm, I'm very good at starting projects, not so good at finishing them, but this would make a great compendium. And I'll put this out as a post to my website. You're more than welcome to use it. It's basically a bulleted list or a template that says, if you want to start running, here's what you should do in what sequence. And you can use it and give it to your friends and Build a methodology around it and make a million dollars, all right? Just send me some coupons. Thank you. And now for today's featured interview. Beautiful day today, huh? Fantastic day. It's a nice, cool start. Made for some good runs this morning, even, and a relaxing afternoon. Nice to see that summer's here, even though we don't seem to get spring anymore around here. I know. I know, and uh, somebody was sending me pictures last week that they still had snow in their yard. Yeah, it was Tuesday. It was the last day I had snow, right? Before I went to the marathon, we took a picture of me sitting in the snow before heading down in the morning. Yeah. So, Randy, why don't you give me the the quick overview? Give me the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do. Sounds good, though. I'm not counting. uh, I'm a brand-new-to-running guy, uh, but I I fancy myself sort of an athlete and adventurer. I, uh, I am totally blind. I have been since the year 2000. I was fully sighted most of my life. And uh, I transitioned from believing everything was possible when I was growing up and fresh out of college to thinking I couldn't do anything fun or important when I went blind. Since going blind, I've, uh, I've learned, fortunately, with some support of others, to turn that on its head. And if there's a goal, if, if it has meaning to me, I'm going to find a way to reach it, solve the problems necessary, and get that out there and do it. And that's, that's included getting a second-degree black belt in martial arts. It's included climbing... 48, 4,000-foot mountains here in New Hampshire a couple of times and running four marathons starting last year on May 4th. That's the goal. Believe in possibility is what I like to approach. Yeah, and that's a great message. That's why I reached out to you because I guess it's inspirational for people, right? You're, you're helping change the world by helping people change their attitudes, which is, which is super important because people can't do anything until they believe they can do it, right? That's the Henry Ford quote, right? Whether you think you can or think you can't, you're probably right, and... You know, I certainly don't set out to say, oh, I'm going to go out and be inspiring. I hear it enough that I'm happy that there's some positive people take away. But I I really do the stuff I do in large part because of the value it has for me. And then I make some extra efforts to be a a good community member, I hope. 
Yeah, you know, I ran for, for uh, Team Hoyt this year uh, at Boston, and, you know, Dick never set out to do anything special. He just went running, and the special stuff happened. So I see it the same way. You're, you're, you know, you're tossing a rock in the pond, and whatever, whatever ripples happen, happen, right? Exactly right. Yeah, so we have mutual friends. Sure, a uh, team with a fellow team with a vision member for uh, for the marathon and beyond, and a uh, great guy. And our friend Thor, who uh, ran you to a qualification marathon to get you qualified after he ran the uh, the death race, I believe. <laughs> He's a nut. I think it snuck in just before his death race. Maybe I actually contributed to that, unfortunately, because he came off Boston as his 100th marathon, and he's a pretty young guy to put 100 marathons on his legs. And uh, we did one run together. You know, he he said, "I I hear your goal. I love the reason you want to do this. You're not ready for it, which we knew, but I know you've got some pretty good will. If you're willing to be determined, I'll coach you every step of the way, and I won't let you quit till we're uh, we're across." And boy, what a what a ride that Cox Providence race was. Yeah, and you uh, and you ran into some uh, some challenging stuff down there too, right? You had a windy day and that sort of thing. Yeah, if you're not properly trained, you're going to have a tough time. That's just the way it works. Um, <laughs> and, and I knew that was the case. And my only my only saving grace, right? I would have trained a little more. I was coming off the death of my dog guide, who was my running partner. That's how I ran for the two years prior to that. And uh, when I lost him. I thought, okay, we'll start. It's winter, tough time to get out there. I don't have a guide. I'll, I'll run on that treadmill. And I was getting my, my paces up there. Of course, as a blind runner, you really need to react to the road surfaces. So treadmill isn't quite what you need. And then just when it came time to get some outside runs, my new dog guide arrived. And the rules for when you get a new dog guide prevent you from being away from them for hours at a time, which you want to do long runs, you've got to get away from them for a couple hours. So... I, I knew I wasn't ready, but you were exactly right. 18 miles, you go, go out along the shore, and the wind came across us and in our face both. And I, I already have a balance issue as well. You know, My neurological condition that took my eyes also damaged my cerebellum. So things that affect my balance make it even more challenging. And that day, worn out from not being quite in shape, being at 18 miles and hitting that headwind, we struggled. He was my rock. Yeah, but I got to tell you, you couldn't pick somebody better to drag you through an experience like that than Thor. I mean, the guy's an animal. He is, and and an animal with an incredible heart too, right? So he's got yeah, deep insight, really sharp perspective on the world. So you know, we had great conversation, which means he had great conversation, and I listened. <laughs> um, but uh, it was it was good, all in all, great great human. Yeah. So talk a little bit about your dog Quinn. I mean, I'm a dog guy too. Mine's barking at me right now, as a matter of fact. He misses me. So you form a bond with these dogs, right, Randy? I mean, and in your case, you're forming, you're almost like one person or one indi- one individual with the dog when you're out and you hiked all of the mountains with them. You guys were like one moving part. So it must have been like losing part of yourself almost. Absolutely, right? I mean, anybody who loves their dog, I, I can't say I love my dog more than anybody else. But there was a codependency that was much stronger than most people get to experience. And I do love him as much as anybody else. You combine that. We were together 24-7 on adventure after adventure for years. And I, you know, I have to put my trust into him constantly. The number of times he saved me from serious injury or, or worse is a high number. But it just was part of you know, the daily routine for us as we go out. So you bet. And when we finished climbing the mountains, we'd done so much learning together. And a few weeks later, I learned something was wrong. And about a month after that, we learned it was terminal cancer. I mean, I was crushed 
because I knew it was coming. I knew it was an end that was too early. He was nine years old. I knew that all of the things we'd done together would always be apart, but they were also going to be no longer within reach. And so not only was I going to grieve for the loss, which is tremendous, but I was going to have an additional loss of my freedom and my independence that these guides give us. I mean, the best example I can give, I, I talk to people who, you know, you drive into your driveway and you don't remember the last five minutes you drove because your brain is free to do things. You're sort of on auto, autopilot. When you're blind and you walk with a cane, your focus is on that cane. It's always telling you, what's, what's this object? What's that object? How do I get around? Am I, am I clear? And you have no time to be yourself. You're entirely a navigator. When you have a dog guide, it's like that moment that you were driving and had no recollection because the dog is worrying about all those details for you, and they'll stop and interrupt you if there's something important, just like what would happen you know, if something jumped out in front and your conscious would be dragged back. And that's what a dog does for you, as well as making it so much more safe. So you bet it was hard in every way imaginable. So you and Quinn hiked the 48 mountains over, over 4,000 feet in New Hampshire, which I love those mountains, by the way. The presidential range is, I think, some of the most beautiful land on Earth up there. But that, those aren't easy climbs. You know, there's a lot of roots and rocks. So how do you do that when you're blind and with your dog? And then how do you do that in the wintertime? Isn't it cold up there in the wintertime? <laughs> well, there's my secret. So, uh, you know, we started out, and it was just I was coming out of the wheelchair. I'd been in a wheelchair because of that balance issue for one year, eight months, and 21 days, which ought to tell you how I felt about it. It was hard. As I got back to walking, you really celebrate walking. And it started a lot of, you know, six surgeries and a lot of physical therapy. And I was using these loft strand crutches, so I'd have like four legs. And then I elevated up to using a single walking stick, which is called a quad cane. And then my physical therapist said, you know what, I want to give you something better. They went out and found a hiking stick as a single extra leg to give me extra balance and let me walk. And Quinn was trained for one additional task besides being a dog guide, and that was to ignore that hiking stick. Because for a dog guide, otherwise he'd see it as an obstacle and we'd be turning left and running in circles. That was so good that as he and I worked, you know, it's sort of like riding a bike. If you ride slow, harder to keep your balance. You get a little more speed, it gets a little easier. And as Quinn and I began to work, I began to have a little easier time because he added a little speed to that work. And practice makes better, maybe not perfect. So as we walked, my brain began to heal. It's called plasticity, but I began to become better the the area of my brain that was damaged began to reform so that I could do things to walk again. Wow. Amazing. So I throw down that hiking stick as we get good enough. And then I think Quinn seems to love the woods. I used to hike when I was a kid. Why am I not letting myself consider it? And I took him out to a mountain and we slowly and steadily learned how to manage all the different types of terrain. And, you know, we started this, this charity 2020 vision quest, which our goal was to take 10 years, 10 leisurely years to, to hike all of those 48 peaks. And 37 months later, we finished our second round, which included doing all 48 in one single winter. And that sort of alludes to your, to your question, well, you know, isn't winter harder? And the secret answer for me, I undertook the winter because I like to focus on ability awareness. I have a disability I can't see. We all have disabilities, things that we can't do, right? To me, you celebrate what you can do and you resolve what you can't if it's important enough. And 46 people ever and two dogs ever had climbed all 48 in one winter. So if I want to really showcase ability awareness in this world, what a great way to give that lesson. And then the real secret is this. In the winter, my biggest challenge goes away. I get some new ones, 
But my biggest challenge is footing, just like you described. Twisty, rocky, rooty, where do you put your foot? In the winter, it becomes smooth. And if you, it may be slippery, but if you wear the right traction device, you can handle that. But it's now easy to put your foot down and far more forgiving if you drop to a knee if something stumbles. You know, I stumble in the summer. I'm bashing into a rock, and I'm at risk of injury every time. So I have to be really slower and in more control. But in the wintertime, you can just go. Absolutely. Now, some of those new challenges, like you said, is it cold? You bet. So you you know, you know, monitor the weather and you make the right choices. It's about risk management. You know, if it's minus 50, I'm not going up into the prezies. You know, we lost a hiker who was very capable this year because it yeah. is dangerous. And I, I did a northern prezi traverse on a pretty cold day, but we knew what the forecasts were doing. We had our turnaround points if things didn't get where they needed to be. And instead, we had magic, you know, eight miles above treeline with just some incredible things happening. And it's a lot of work, but a lot, a lot of reward in, in so many ways. And, you know, I'd say the Lafayette Ridge and the Prezi, the northern Prezi Traverse are two of the most beautiful areas, just, just as you said. Yeah, I used to have an office in Quebec City, so I'd drive through the notch. And I'd make sure to secretly lose some time in the commute so I could get out and run up uh, Lafayette. Beautiful right there. It sure is. Old bridal path, right? Up the agonies. Yep, to that. yep. And the uh, Falling Waters Trail there. Is that what it's called? Oh, no. So I've yeah. come down that a couple times. They've renamed it Falling Blind Guy, I think, because that's, uh, <laughs> that's pretty much what it felt like to me. But, yeah, yeah. Falling Waters is, uh, is a tough little trail. That's when you go into Lincoln. Yeah, because you're on either side of that stream having to sort of jump over roots, that's a tough one. I mean, that was hard for me, and, I'm, and I, have, uh, I have no vision problems that I know of. So you did the 48. Then you decided you want to take up running, qualified for Boston, right? Yeah, they sort of happened together. So I started running because getting in better shape helped me for hiking, in that if my conditioning is better, that's more of my focus is, is on my footing, which is so fundamental. And my dog guide, as we took longer and longer walks, started saying, let's pick up the pace. And he led me back to running. And I remember the morning that I figured it out. I was doing this loop road that has no side streets, which makes it easier for a dog guide. And as we're trotting along, I come up behind somebody and I I hear him say to me, you know, hey, who's, you know, who's going by me, you know, as I'm going by. And I was like, oh, it's Randy Pierce. Sorry, I I try to give you a heads up. And then he laughs with this weird sound. And the sound was because he, uh, because I asked him, I said, you know, what's, what was that laugh about? He's like, I've got to go home and tell my wife a blind guy just passed me. Maybe I should give up running. And I laughed and I thought about that. And I said, you know what? I didn't consider myself running until that moment. I considered myself out kind of jogging. But once you start passing people, maybe you are putting a little more. So Quinn and I began to advance that. And I, he and I ran 33 road races of the 5K and 10K variety together. And you know, there's many ways to solve problems. You can find somebody who's already solved it where you can pioneer a new solution. And really running with a dog guide wasn't something that was done, but he was so good at it that I kept experimenting with where we could go. I, you know, I remember a moment we were at the Portsmouth Market Square Day 10K, and they weren't sure about letting a guide dog in. They just weren't sure how it worked, but they also aren't sure what the ADA, the Americans with Disability Act, requires. So they said, will you start in the back of the race for us? And I said, I will, but I'm reasonably quick. If I do, I'm going to pass a lot of folks. And sure enough, you know, we finished ten, top 10%, so we passed an awful lot of people that day. Yeah. yeah. Any incidents? No, um, not for us, but I thought there was because I heard this tremendous crash. And I kind of tipped my head trying to figure out what happened. It was ahead of me by about 8, 10 feet. And the woman who was running beside me at the time said, not your fault. That guy was so amazed by what your dog is doing, he ran into the water table. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's great. And then what, what led to Boston is that in 2013, we ran the BAA 5K road race. And again, BAA wasn't entirely certain. They'd never had a dog guide run a race. We're going to do this. And, you know, there's, there's 9,000 people running that race. That's crowded and, and tight and, and tough. And it used to finish on the same finish line as the Boston Marathon. And they captured with their race photographer this marvelous picture with Quinn having maybe one paw on the ground and tongue hanging out and a look of joy on his face. And I'm a little hunched over and tired maybe, but uh, it, it was the finish line with the flag display in the background. It's a classic photo. Yeah. They shared it everywhere. We shared it. And, you know, it did a lot of things for me. And one of the things it did is it reminded me that what, you know one day later that flag display blew up. And I said, you know, I love the community that's the Boston Marathon. You know, I have a friendship with Teddy Bruschi, who he described the Boston Marathon really aptly, I think. He said it's the Super Bowl of road races. It's a 26.2-mile home stadium. What a great analogy, right? I mean, it's just so much support for every style of, of person out there running. And I said, I, I want to be part of that, and I want to be part of the community that responds to adversity, which is a theme in my life, I think, but, you know, responds in the right ways, like the people who are helping the victims. You know, they're running towards the victims, and they don't break stride when the second bomb goes off. That's what I want to be a part of. That's what I want to celebrate. And, I've, I would, you know, I'm going to run the next year's Boston Marathon. And then I failed to do that because Quinn took sick. And instead of training and running and doing what it took to qualify, I gave all my time to him. And that, I don't begrudge that a bit right? because the lesson is, you know, it's not a failure to restructure your goals to meet what's, what's right in your life, whatever that is. In fact, that's a bigger success. I didn't run last year, but when I lost him on January 20th, I said, okay, this boy got me back to running, got me back to walking. How can I honor him in any way better than to celebrate with with the race that he got me started on so that's where i came up with the idea of qualifying for quinn and running the marathon which which obviously i did qualify and along the way I discovered as a totally blind runner i'm uh i'm pretty fast and so in that world you know can i compete with the elites no way am i the national champion of my division i am as of december last year which was surprise to me and then i improved my time by 25 minutes in boston on a somewhat less than ideal day that's great so what's your message right if you had to sum it up what's your message to people so i uh i'd give one of two and i'm going to give the shorter one easier to deliver right we influence our life with everything we do and that's great and have all the positive influence you can you know a lot of people will tell you that when things happen to you you still have the choice in how you respond to those things I believe in that as well. The part that I would add is this. I think the choice you make in how you respond to any adversity in your life, that choice will have a bigger impact on your life than any adversity ever could. You know, in my case, my life is not about being blind. It's about all the wonderful things that get to happen because I choose to find ways to do the things that are important to me. That's great. So what are your plans now? What's the big thing? What are you doing now to change the world? What's this year have for you, Randy? Uh, well, I don't, I don't set out to change the world, certainly, but uh, there's a couple of good things. You know, March 28th, I did, uh, I did my second Tough Mudder, and it got caught on film, and one of the challenges went viral internationally, which is pretty crazy because it was a ridiculous challenge. So I've got a Tough Mudder coming up on June 7th. I'm going to do my third, and then uh, in September, I'm going to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro, the tallest standalone mountain in the world. Keely. So All right. And if that all goes well, then in December I'll be back out to defend my national championship, and you bet I won't miss a Boston if I get my way. 
So um, you got a new guide dog that you're training up, huh? I do. Miss uh, Miss Autumn is a black and tan Labrador Retriever, which is a very rare type. And uh, it looks like hiking is her thing. It looks like running, not so much. And that's okay, right? <laughs> You've got to do what works for us. And uh, I'm, I've probably advanced thanks to some great human guides training me. You know, I, there's so many amazing people. And, and uh, there's a new program out there called unitedinstride.com, which is helping match up guides and runners. And that's just expanded my world to be able to run wherever I go at the speeds that I need. You know, sometimes you're challenging yourself. Sometimes you're just running, and all of those are possible. So Autumn and I will stick to we already handle our world really well. We'll stick to some climbing adventures, and then we'll find out what other things call to her as well. So, so the real question is, who's who's a better guy, Thor or a dog? Ooh, uh, it depends what you want to do, right? The right guide for the right occasion. <laughs> uh, if I got to run you. a marathon unprepared, I'm going to call Thor and and call him in. Although, you know, I might call my most common run partner, Greg Hallerman. He's been coaching me this year, and. Tor set me on a path, and Greg has taken me a, a lot further on that path. So, got to give my buddy a shout out. All right, all right. So, I'll let you get back to your uh, recovery this afternoon in this beautiful New England day. But um, if you had to have a, a takeaway here, of what you've learned from all this, I've learned a, a couple of things. But uh, one fun lesson to keep it to one is that you know everybody runs for their own reason, and that's that's great, right? If running is for you. Go out and enjoy it for that reason. For me and for many visually impaired or, or like me, totally blind runners, the unique aspect is it's a team sport. And I really believe in the power of team, right? The acronym, Together Everyone Achieves More. I couldn't even be out there running if it wasn't for people. But what's their benefit from it, too? And I think that everybody I've run with has found something to take away that has changed their perspective, maybe changed their vision of what the world is about. And I love that, which is why I hope to turn it around on you before we're done and say, hey, when do we get to go out and take a run together? Because I think see a course through my eyes, sort of, and I get to see it through your eyes, we will really hit a team that'll uh, that'll change maybe both of our worlds a little bit. Yeah, we'll go run up uh, Falling Waters. <laughs> well, if we're running up Falling Waters, we're running in the winter or at a really slow pace. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm sure we've run together. We just don't know it because we're in the same sort of uh, geography. We're, you're probably 25 miles from where I am right now. So we'll do a half meet in the middle, right? That's good. There you go. There you go. Meet you in the middle. Meet you in the middle. You take the rail trail south from Hudson, and I'll take it north from there, and I'll meet you in Groton. You got it. Chris, what a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, and I love what you do. You've had some great folk on there, and I, I really feel honored to have been a part of that. Yeah, I appreciate your time today, Randy, and uh, keep up the good work, all right? Sounds good. We'll talk, to you, we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. All right. Happy trails. If I have planted one seed, I am happy. If I have nudged one thought, I am satisfied. The next time we meet, we will both be different people, but our common base of understanding will have grown. All I want is a freaking decent salad. Can't we innovate our way out of this fast food mess? Every day, I struggle with the trade-off between the need to eat healthy and the logistics of eating healthy. I wrote a post last week in one of the business groups that I'm in on LinkedIn about how to eat healthy when traveling. 
I saw the ex-president of McDonald's speak at a conference this week as well, and I was a bit discouraged by what she had to say. I want to dip into this some more. Maybe one of you young, energetic, entrepreneurial types will get that billion-dollar idea from this, and you can send me some free meal coupons. Coupons. When you strike it rich. I think there's an opportunity for some innovation here that could change the world. The reason fast food exists is convenience. That's the trade-off. Convenience and time for healthy eating. People grab a cheeseburger at a fast food joint because it's easy and it's fast. You can drive up and they hand it to you. You don't need to clean it or cook it. You can eat it without a fork while you're driving. It's easy. And this is where the healthy eating lifestyle really becomes a challenge. If you want to eat fruits and vegetables, you have to find them, clean them, cook them, and sometimes they're hard to eat. Let's take a simple example. Let's take the example of a salad. A salad is simple, right? Not so fast, my friend. In order for me to have a salad for lunch, I need to go to the grocery and get all the ingredients. And let's say my average salad consists of leaf lettuce, kale, red peppers, cucumber, celery, carrots, broccoli, tomato, avocado, raw almonds, and homemade balsamic vinaigrette dressing. Your ingredients might be different, but you get the idea. That's a rather complex meal. Why wouldn't I just buy it from the drive-thru? You can't get that salad from any drive-thru. As a matter of fact, you can't get that salad from any place except my kitchen. Or maybe your kitchen. This is a multicolored, multi-textured, whole food health bomb. It's good for me. It's filling. It's awesome to eat for lunch. It's nutrition dense and calorie low. But what do I have to do to make that salad? I have to wash each of the component vegetables. I have to process each of them. To clean and prepare this list of salad components takes about 45 minutes. Since this is a relatively fixed time, whether I'm making one salad or a big pile of salad, I usually make five days' worth. And this is about the limit of shelf life once these components are processed and mixed. This is where it starts to approach convenience. Once I have it all processed, I can containerize it into single-serving containers, whether these are reusable refrigerator containers or plastic baggies. Once the stuff is partitioned, then it becomes a grab-and-go item. Someone could hand it out a window into my car for me. But I'm not done. The nuts, the avocados, and the balsamic vinaigrette are added after the fact when it's time to consume. The nuts are easy. You just grab a handful and toss them into the single-serving container when the day of use, the time of use, arrives. You can't put them in ahead of time or they'll get soggy. Now, avocado and nuts in the salad, they add the protein and the good fats. Without these components, the salad will be weighted a little bit too far on the carb side, and it won't fill you up, and it'll make you feel like you're starving in a couple of hours after you eat it. So you need that stuff. Now the avocado, that can't be processed until it's time to eat the salad. It'll go brown very quickly. Timing the avocado ripeness 
is an art in itself. You have to select them in the store at a ripeness that will develop to perfection as you need them during the week. The window for use is small. Plus or minus a day on either side, your avocado will either be green or mushy. It's an acquired act, avocado wrangling. Avocados are not convenience food. They need to be nurtured and timed. I'll buy a week's worth on the green side and take them out of the fridge one or two a day to ripen. If you choose them correctly, they should ripen to perfection in one or two days on the counter at room temperature. Luckily, the avocado comes in its own convenient packaging. It's another grab-and-go item in the morning. You have to process it a bit when lunchtime comes. This entails peeling and cutting with a knife. Not hard, but something you can't do while driving a car. What about the dressing? Well, guess what? You can't get that in the drive-thru, any drive-thru either. Commercial salad dressing is a stealth way to get chemicals, unhealthy fats, sodium, and processed sugar into your heretofore healthy salad. I make my own. What's in it? Olive oil, balsamic or wine or apple vinegar, garlic cloves, spices and herbs, sea salt, ground hot peppers. That's how you get the flavor into your salad. Plus, you get some good pH basic from the vinegar and some more good fat from the oil. It takes about 20 minutes for me to load all this into a blender and process about a liter of dressing. And as with the salad, it's a fixed cost, so I make about two bottles worth. And theoretically, this dressing is shelf-stable, and it hasn't killed me yet. After processing, the dressing becomes convenient. I squirt some onto my salad in the morning, add the nuts, shake it up for that perfect lunch salad. What's my point? Do I have a point? Yes, I do. In order to have this example of the healthy salad, I've got a trip to the market, about an hour of fixed processing time a week, and each day there's an incremental small bit of processing in addition. In terms of convenience, once I have everything prepped, the salad is pretty low time cost during the day. Uh, but this is not something that's easy to eat while driving a car. You need a fork and a steady hand. The healthy food gurus would say that this time cost is an appropriate investment in your life, in your health. In fact, what they are saying is that you should be willing to make the sacrifice and change your lifestyle to get to healthy meals. I shouldn't expect to be able to pick up my salad with fresh avocado, raw almonds, and homemade spicy vinaigrette in a drive through I shouldn't expect that. I should sacrifice. I have a better idea. Why don't we meet the people who need this food where they are? Why don't we figure out how to co-opt convenience and scale to our advantage? What is convenience? Convenience is getting what I want when I want it at a price I want to pay. Can I get a salad in an airport or drive through today? Sure, I can but it will not be the salad I want. It will be some sad, wilted romaine lettuce with croutons and commercial dressing. What's the point of that? I might as well have the cheeseburger. Let's meet the next generation where they are. So I propose for you young entrepreneurs a new fast food business. I'm going to call it Boom Salads. 
And it comes with an app that you can use to configure your salad, right? You configure your salad. You place your order online or on the phone, and fresh components of your choice are processed real-time and mixed to your preference. Same thing with the dressing. You essentially configure the recipe and processing requirements from a menu of choices like I described above. And since it will be a volume business, this can all be mechanized and scaled to promote freshness. Taking beyond the drive through there will be a delivery option as well that comes in standardized containers that keep fresh in the office fridge. And while we're at it, we'll create some sort of leaf or seaweed wrap or something that you can use to eat it in the car without a fork and you won't ruin your shirts. Why is this harder than killing and processing a cow? How is this more complex than processing and presenting an oil-fried potato chunk? It's not a convenience problem. It's an innovation problem. It's a lack of will and a lack of leadership. We have the power to shift cultural norms in a single generation. Our grandparents smoke cigarettes. We don't. Cultural norms are open to innovation. There's no reason this can't be made better. All I want is a freaking salad. This is the end, my only friend. No safety or surprise. The end. We'll never pass this way again. The end. That was a good one, bud. All right, my friends, it's Friday. I'm working on three hours of sleep and losing altitude fast, but we have made it to the conclusion of episode 4-312. Congratulations. Now, let's move to the exit before I fall asleep on you. Now that I've gotten the green light, I have to figure out how to spin up my running again. My next uh, planned event is a half marathon in the middle of June called the Mayflower Brewery Half Marathon in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And, of course, the Hood to Coast Relay, then, is at the end of the summer. I don't know what else I'll be doing in between there. If anybody wants to join the Hood to Coast team, we still have legs available. It's a relay, and it certainly will be an adventure. I'll be setting up a fundraising page for that and looking for help. So, as you may have figured out, I read a lot. And I don't just read within my areas of expertise. Yes, I read business books and running books. But I also read fiction, biographies, science fiction, short stories, and any other topic that I find interesting in the moment. I would offer this up to you, in fact, as a life lesson, to study things that you know nothing about. I'm always pleased by the connections I can make between topics that are on the surface not related at all. But my friends, everything is related. Feed your brain a varied diet and you'll see the connections. So, watch what I do next. I'm going to draw a connection between picking up beautiful women, sales processes, and tantric sex. How about that? And I'm going to do it without garnering an explicit rating. Feels a bit like a dangerous high-wire act, but what's life without risk? And I should note, not that you're going to believe me, but this is all an academic exercise for me. I'm not in the middle of some bizarre midlife crisis where I jet off to the Caribbean with my secretary. I don't actually have a secretary, although I do dig the Caribbean. Great scuba diving. The connection between sales process and pickup techniques should be obvious. 
In both cases, you have to have a methodology to approach the target, get their interest by demonstrating high social or professional value, build attraction through a push-pull process of demonstrating interest but also challenging, and then you build enough trust that you can test compliance and naturally move towards a close. Simple, right? See, it's amazing how much a sales cycle and a pickup cycle have in common. But how do I tie in the tantric sex? Here we go. In all three of these examples, the first thing that you are told to focus on is letting go of the result. If you are focused on the end result of the process, it clouds your ability to execute the process and it prevents you from being in the present moment. For a sales cycle, this means you have to let go of the desire to close the business and get the money. For the pickup artist, this means you have to let go of the, your desire to get the woman. And for the tantric sex, you likewise reset your focus on the now and not any particular climactic event. If you think about it, there is an underlying lesson here. The ability to live in the present moment and be present to your partners, whether business or social, is your ability to add value and connect in that moment. But you can only do it if you're willing to let go of the end result. So my friends, we spend so much time in our lives rushing from one thing to the next, from one goal to the next, from one result to the next, that we forget that every moment in itself is truth and purity. Are you freewheeling, peripatetically downhill to a frenzied end yourself? Maybe you should slow down a little bit, cool down a little bit. Maybe you need to take the time to be present, especially in your interactions with the people in your life. Don't forget about right now, this moment, and appreciate it. And if I happen to run into you, I will be sure to appreciate it and see you out there. And then... He thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. So here's a post that's called Bast... <laughs> Basta Basics. <laughs> no, that's the fishing show. 